Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, especially those who are with us for the first time, or maybe you're new for the past month. Glad to see you. We're happy you made us your church home for an hour today, and it's our hope that we can provide for you a longer stay. We're going to continue our series on grace, what it means to partner with grace. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The title of the message today is Grace to Give. Grace to Give. As we get into the message, uh, my apologies for Robert and Jared. Some stuff a boss can't fix. Only God. Only God. And and I'm waiting. I'm I'm waiting. I love you, Pastor Brown. That's what I'm talking about right there. Some stuff a boss can't fix. Some stuff needs more fixing than that. Oh, gosh. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 5. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, Now, brethren... We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Verse 3, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in in the support of the saints. Verse 5. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Father, help us as we study. Three things, uncovered grace, an unusual recipe of liberality, and then unveiled process. Uncovered grace, an unusual recipe for liberality, and then an unveiled process. Background. Paul has started both the church at Corinth, to whom he's writing, and the church at Philippi, about whom he is writing. The church at Philippi is made up primarily of a number of of Gentile believers like us. There may be some Jewish people there, but generally if there's a large Jewish population and a large Gentile population in the church, there are issues with respect to how they worship, highlighted by the fact that Paul writes to the church at Ephesians, uh, the church at Ephesus, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Galatia, to the church at Rome, all about how in the world Gentiles and Jews can relate together in church. What does a potluck dinner look like when Gentiles bring ribs and lobster? And you've got this kosher community over here, this Jewish, that can't figure out how in the world to incorporate this Gentile culture. And that's that's just the small things. They have different standards about what worship ought to look like and different ideas about what's holy meat and what's not holy meat, what what is proper regarding the Jewish festivals and what isn't and what they can drink and, and, and what was this prepared if I'm going to eat it, even though it may be something that's on the list of dietary requirements for the Jews. And what was it prepared? Did you wash your hands before you you cooked it. I mean, there were all kinds of regulations. 
We see none of that in the church at Philippi when, when Paul writes. No issue regarding Jew and Gentile. And so our sense is because we understand how it got started, meaning the church at Philippi, you can look in Acts 16 to see it, it was started by men and women who were primarily Gentiles like us. It did not have Jewish lineage. That the church itself was probably monoethnic, maybe multicultural in that there were Jew- Gentiles from all over the world, but it was monoethnic with respect to, to the Greek culture and maybe some Romans. Um, seeing that to be the case, the fact that Paul talks about how extraordinary the Macedonians were, and the Macedonian region was the region in which Philippi was founded. The Macedonians were, with respect to their giving to, to Jerusalem, is not only strategic in terms of Paul's scope, but amazing in terms of their heart. Because most of the Jews in Jerusalem didn't even think we Gentiles could be saved. They thought that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who came to minister to Jewish people and died for Jewish people. God had to give Peter a very specific revelation about us to let him know that he cared about us as well. Even though Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, the disciples heard it like this, go into all of the Jewish world and preach the gospel. Meaning wherever you find Jews in the world, tell them about this Jesus who is their Messiah. Peter had no idea that God was interested specifically in us. And I don't know that I fault him because that's the culture in which he grew up. But he sure didn't hear well with respect to what Jesus intended. And it took 10 years, 10 years, before God had to get his attention with him being in a fellow, a friend of his house named Simon. And Simon was a tanner. And, and the, the, the trade of tanning was when you took raw leather and made it, excuse me, raw hides and made it into leather, made it supple, usable, coats, shoes, uh, flasks in which you could put water or, or other kinds of drink. And a tanner would, would use somewhat offensive chemicals in order to do their job. And he was staying at this man, man's house named Simon. And um, it says that Peter went on the roof in order to have lunch because Simon probably had some, those, some of those chemicals in his home. And the way you would best make rawhide into leather was you would use animal excrement. Yeah. And so Peter was duly incentivized to go to the roof. And while on the roof, all of a sudden, he falls into a trance, and out of the sky comes a sheet in which you had pigs and lobster and all kinds of things that were not edible for the Jewish man. And, and God said, get up and eat. Peter said, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. Now, you know you've got a problem when you say, no, Lord. <laughs> we're starting off wrong here. If he is your Lord, you really can't say no when he tells you to do something. So we got an apostle, the leader of the church, who's telling God no when God said do something. So we got issues. So God gave him a second vision, same thing. She came out of the sky, opened up all these unclean animals. God said, get up and eat. He said, no, I've never eaten anything. Third time it happened. Peter finally said, God, what are you doing? He said, what I have called clean, you don't call unclean anymore. He said, I'm sending some men to you. And they are from a man named Cornelius' house. When they show up at the front door, you go with them because I want you to preach this gospel to this man named Cornelius. Cornelius happened to be a Roman centurion. 
These men showed up at the door as soon as Peter came out of his trance. Simon answered the door. Peter was still on the roof. When Simon answers the door, he's looking at these Roman soldiers who have been sent by Cornelius. And he's thinking, oh my goodness, they're coming for my apostle. I'm going to stand. Is is, is Peter there? No. (laughs) He's thinking he's, he's protecting his apostle. Peter comes down and says, yeah, I'm here. And I imagine Simon's going nuts. What do, you, what do you do? He said, God told me to go with these men. He goes with them, preaches the gospel. For the first time, the Holy Spirit falls upon a group of Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. That's what Gentiles mean, the rest of the nations. Falls upon a group of Gentiles while Peter is preaching. And they all get saved in a minute. And Peter's going, wow, this is amazing. God loves other people too. <laughs> Literally. And then he says, I guess we can't prohibit them from entering into baptism, can we? Because they received the Holy Spirit just like we did. Meaning, even if they got saved, he was going to prohibit us from being baptized. Because he thought, well, they're second class. They really can't come all the way into the covenant. This is how the Jewish church in Jerusalem thought of us. Peter went back after his experience and tried to explain to the leaders in in the Jewish church what happened. And all of them were going, no, dude, no, not Gentiles. You got to be kidding. The Holy Spirit fell on them too? Come on. Really? They spoke in tongues? No. No. Really? Yeah. And that was the emphasis that the church in Jerusalem would then put on us. Knew it was, but they began to think about us, but they didn't do anything to get us. All they did was say, okay, God loves Gentiles, but we're not going to reach out to them. And so nothing happened with respect to outreach until a guy named Saul got saved, who became Paul. And then Paul started the outreach to people like us, which is where we get the church in Corinth, to which he's writing, and the people about whom he's writing, the church in Philippi. God is bringing now this church in Philippi, and we don't have any indication that it's Jew and Gentile because there's no discussion of how they need to get along when you do have discussions in the other books I referenced prior. So what we have is a predominantly Gentile people giving to a predominantly Jewish people in Jerusalem, in fact, probably only Jewish people in Jerusalem that are Christians that are experiencing very great difficulty Because there's a famine going on in the land and the Jewish people are impoverished. What a juxtaposition. People giving to a people that didn't think the people who are giving should even be saved. Now, you talk about a strategist. I don't know that there was a better one than than Saul or Paul. Same guy, changed his name. Just think, if there had been no church outside of Jerusalem, what Jerusalem would have done during the time of famine when people were dying. Not only did Paul reach people like us, but he reached a supply chain that helped the church in Jerusalem survive a famine that lasted four or five years. And in doing so, tied Jerusalem to the rest of the world. And now they could look at Philippi and they could look at Corinth and different places and say, Gosh, I didn't know they cared about us because we sure haven't cared about them. He brought relationship into it by giving. And there's something that is built when you enter into the grace to give. 
It's not just you distributing resources. Something is built. A bridge is connecting two lives, two groups, two missions to do something greater than they ever could do individually. So Paul says here to the church at Corinth, I've got to unveil to you something. You can't, you can't see it unless I tell you about it. I want to make known to you the grace that has been given to the church at Macedonia that allowed them to give in an extraordinary way. He doesn't want to talk about the church in Macedonia with respect to their efforts as much as he wants to talk about the grace that has been distributed for them to give. And he's using the church at Macedonia to speak to the church at Corinth about what needs to be done in Jerusalem because Paul mentioned to the church at Corinth first about their responsibility to give to Jerusalem. And the church at Corinth was excited about it in the beginning. And they began to take up offerings. And as soon as they took up enough, and Paul sent Titus to the church at Corinth to receive the offering, to bring it back to Jerusalem, something happened in the middle. They started well, but they didn't end well. And so Paul writes to him and says, I, I heard that you, you started taking up the offerings, but something happened in the middle whereby you wanted to use those offerings for other things. And he even says this, covetousness crept in. Covetousness is desiring that which is somebody else's. They had given this offering of their own volition to the church of Jerusalem, and they were holding it. But now they were thinking, you know, that's a nice pot of money right there. Wonder what we can do with that pot of money. And Paul described that, even though it was still in their possession, as covetousness. Because they had already dedicated it to something else. He said, covetousness. I'm afraid it might, might have crept in to deprive you of your privilege of giving. And so now he's using the church at Philippi to compare their responsibility and Philippi's willingness to give. And he says... I'm not just talking about Philippi pulling up their bootstraps and saying they really dug down deep. And boy, they, they, they sacrificed with great effort. No, he says, I want to make known to you the grace that was given to them. Grace. Grace allows you to do what you cannot do on your own. And when you partner with it, people look at you and say, how did you, where, where did that come? And you can't, you can't take any credit. Because you realize it was the grace of God. I want to make known to you the grace of God that was given to the church at Macedonia. He uncovers that this was God's doing. And it's a privilege when a church can move into a realm where grace can only define it. It's not because they were wealthy. It's not because they were so gifted. It's not because they were so mature and they've been around a long time and they, they, they know the ropes so well. It's not because they had a bunch of ministers. The grace of God was on them and they were able to do things that they never could have done on their own. I want to make known to you this grace, he says. Why? Because if it was all about Philippi's effort, then Corinth may not be able to match it. If it was all about just comparison gosh, you ought to go to another church because there are better preachers than me. There are better worship teams, although they were pretty hot today. <laughs> they were pretty hot today. Pretty, I, I might take that back a little bit. <laughs> better administrations. We do what we can, and we try to do everything we do with excellence. We really we press it because we want to make sure that there are no distractions to your progress in the kingdom. Zero. That's our goal. 
and that every place you go in our church, you're able to see the same degree of excellence, administrated by different personalities, pulled off with different gifts, but the same degree of excellence every place, with the same value system, the same understanding of what discipleship means, the same understanding of leadership development, the same understanding of service and sacrifice. We work hard at that, but we are not the best in the world. If it's all about just comparison, boy, T.D. Jake's got it going on, baby. That dude's amazing. Lon Solomon down at McLean Bible, wow, he got like 20,000 people. He's got it going on. My buddy Gary Hamrick over at Cornerstone in Leesburg, what a pastor. He's my friend. 4,000 people on a Sunday, wow. I'm not trying to compare. But if grace is distributed to us, then we can do whatever we are called to do outside of our ability and do it to the glory of God and then be an example to anybody else. You may not be able to do it like us, but when grace is distributed to you, you can do it like you. You can do it however God has called you to be and whatever he's called you to do, you can do it like you. I want to make known to you this grace and everything about Christianity is prompted by, fueled by, empowered by grace. It's not about how wealthy you are. It's not about how strong you are. It's not about how much influence you've got. It's about whether the grace of God is empowering you. Otherwise, you can take all the credit. It's all about you. And I've already gone way beyond my ability to take credit. I know what I'm not. I understand every day what I don't have. The only reason you're here and the only reason I can do what I do, whereby you want to sit here and listen to what I do, is by grace. That's it. And then he says, this grace which was distributed manifested in in an unusual recipe for liberality. Now, most people define the ability to be liberal with their resources on the basis of how much they have. So if you're wealthy, then you have the ability to be very liberal. I mean, we look at people that are billionaires and we think, well, why don't they just give one? <laughs> why don't they just give one to the AIDS crisis or to hunger? Just, if they've got like 10, give one. We, don't, we, we think they can do that. And we judge people who have resources differently than God does. Now, there's no question to whom much is given, much is required. But what is your definition of much? See, the church at Philippi didn't have a whole lot of money, but they had a lot of grace. To whom much grace is given. So whether you have money or not doesn't have anything to do with how liberal you can be. The recipe. I want you to know, Church of Corinth, that in these people's great ordeal of affliction, he doesn't just talk about affliction. It's not that they were going through a difficult time. They were going through an unusually hard, difficult time. You don't see these words put together in any other way than when Paul talks about, other than when Paul talks about the difficulty through which he went. When he says, I was a, a, a day and a night in the sea like three times, drifted on wood, beaten with rod, rods four times, flogged five times, abandoned by brethren, hungry, naked, 
And then he says these momentary light afflictions. Momentary light. He says, I want you to know what I've been through. I boast about these afflictions through which I've been. He says, these people, they went through a great ordeal of affliction. Great ordeal. And we do know this, that the church in Philippi did not start amicably. There were no red, red carpets rolled out for, for Paul when he came to start it. It was a difficult time. Very, very hard. As Paul started the church in Acts 16 in Philippi, he was going through and, and preaching, and, and a woman named Lydia had just gotten born again, and, and then people in her house had gotten right, and, and then he was walking through the city, and there was this little girl that was following him. And she was saying, Paul, servant of the Most High God. Paul, servant of the Most High God. Paul, servant of the Most High God. Over and over and over. Well, you would think that wouldn't be much of a problem and that maybe she was announcing how wonderful this man was, except she was inspired by the enemy and it was mocking. So it wasn't Paul, servant of the Most High God. It was Paul, servant of the Most High God. Hmm. Hmm. That. And after a day, Paul realized this shouldn't be anymore. So he turned to her and he cast the devil, the, the evil spirit, out of the girl that was inspiring her. So she had moved in the spirit of divination, kind of fortune-telling. She didn't have God in her. She was moving supernaturally, but by the agency of the enemy. And he cast the devil out of her. Well, she was, she was hired by a master. She was a servant girl. And the master realized she's lost her ability to do the supernatural stuff anymore. He got hot. He, he, lost his, he lost his goose that laid the golden egg. So he goes to, to Paul. He says, you, can't, you just ruined my day. I, I have no more income now. He got all of his buddies that were idol makers and the whole guild of people that worked. A guild was a uh, union back then, closest thing. Worked together in order to produce the kind of commerce from which he gained from, from this lady. And he got all these people together and they came and stormed Paul and Silas and they took him before the, the magistrates and said, these people are ruining our economy. They didn't say anything about the gospel. There are many ways to persecute the church. It's not just about what you say. They'll find other ways to do what they can to stop your influence. They're ruining our economy. They beat Paul and Silas and threw them in jail. That's how the church at Philippi got started. That was a reputation that all the believers who came after them had to, had to deal with. That was the wake that they fell in every day. So when they talked about Jesus... Everybody remembered, oh, you're, you're part of that band that got arrested, beat up those criminals and messed up our economy. You're with them, huh? So, and, and remember, the church, the early church, persecution came at different levels. It wasn't just one-on-one. It was governmental. Church at Rome hated Christians. Excuse me, excuse me. The Roman government hated Christians. They didn't like the Jewish faith to begin with. One, it was monotheistic. And theirs was polytheistic. So they couldn't understand why the, the Jews would reject all of their gods and choose one. Why couldn't they just add their gods to the pantheon and flow in with the Roman Empire? Number two, the Jewish, Jews thought that there was a different system by which they should live. Different culture, different religion. They had their own temple. They wouldn't accept any of the other temples. 
And they had their own customs, new moon festivals, all kinds of things, uh, day of Pentecost, the Passover, Feast of Booze, things that they had to accommodate in the land of Judah that the Roman Empire didn't want. To show how, how the Roman Empire was so trying to make it work, although I have no, I have no way of trying to apologize to the Roman Empire. There's, this isn't an apologetic as to how good they were. They were a mess. They were horrible. But they were trying in that not only did they place Pontius Pilate over the region of Judea, but they also let the Jews have their own governors while Pontius Pilate was there. So you had Herod, you had Felix, you had Agrippa, a whole bunch of different puppets of the Roman Empire that were supposed to be in the best interest of the Jews. They were working it, but they didn't know how to make it happen. They got so mad at the Jews by 70 AD, they came and destroyed Jerusalem. They would rather have the city not exist than to receive taxes from them. That's how mad they were. And on top of that, now you've got this extended religion from the Jewish religion that was led by a guy who actually said he was a king instead of Caesar. So all the people who were in Jerusalem, even though they were Jews, if they were a part of the church, they were also now Christians, who followed a guy who the the Romans said was a rival of Caesar. So they hated Christians even more than they hated Jews. There was no love lost. So when a Christian became a Christian, now they couldn't be apart. Excuse me. I got in, I, I woke up at three this morning to fly in from Detroit. And so my brain doesn't work as well as it, as it could, so I'm working it. Sometimes I'm sleeping while I'm talking, so just work with me this morning. <laughs> when people became Christians, they no longer could participate in the guilds. The associations that would allow them the privilege, if you were a metal worker, of getting metal at a cheaper rate. Now you had to go get it on your own. If you were a seamstress, you couldn't get the the fabric you needed. You had to go get it on your own. Everybody else could buy it in bulk. Not you. And then they would tax Christians even more. So there was persecution all over. You could even have your property apprehended. And lastly, you could be thrown to the lions or be gladiator practice. It was horrible. Something on that order, someplace in there, defined great ordeal of affliction. Secondly, it said they had the abundance of joy. Great ordeal of affliction, abundance of joy. These two don't meet. Not in the world, they don't meet. Only For the believer who sees and hears and feels things differently. Only for the person who understands that there's a reality beyond the one they're in. Can they have joy that goes beyond the pain. That your affliction doesn't have to define you. I know you're going through difficulty. But it should not rob you of your joy. Because at the core of who we are, we are a people that are not getting what we deserve. Every day of your life, you need to get up and set the tone by saying something like this. God, I ain't going to hell today. Thank you. I mean, you got, you got what, 80 here, right? 80, 90, if you really work it, if you work out and eat right, 90. Unless you have really good genes and you just smoke every day of your life and drink and just... You didn't do it. You you got 80 or 90. That's about it. Do you know how far eternity is past 90? 
And there you get to be in the presence of Almighty God forever. Now, I am not saying that we need to somehow minimize our 80 or 90. I want them to be nice as they can possibly be. But sometimes you got to start at the least common denominator to, to determine how your joy meter should be set today. Because if not, circumstances will let you know how happy you ought to be. And remember, happy is a derivative of happen. So whatever happened to you today will determine your happiness. If it wasn't good, you ain't going to be happy. If it was good, you're going to be happy. Do you know there's a lot of bad that, that can happen to you when you walk out this door? The world's going the wrong way. For the most part, a lot of bad can happen, which is going to determine how happy you are. This is why you cannot let the world determine whether you should be happy. You can't. You've got to let something else be your meter. Something else be the barometer on your joy. And that is the fact that God loves you and you have not been judged for your sin. You don't have to suffer the consequences of your misdeeds. He has paid your penalty. He took your whooping. And forever your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You let that be the tone setter for your soul every day of your life. So you can have joy even when things are crumbling around you. In a great ordeal of affliction, you can have joy that abounds in your life. Doesn't mean you need to be happy about the bad stuff. It just means it doesn't set the tone for your soul. Are you listening to me? Now, that's, a, that's, only, that's only the second piece of the recipe. The third is they were poor as you could get. Deep poverty. We would call it abject poverty. We're not talking about American poverty. Oh, I'm compassionate on people who are struggling. We help. We have a benevolence fund. We help people. But he's not talking about American poverty. American poverty for the rest of the world is rich. Most folk live on $2 a day. Three quarters of the world, two-thirds of the world, live on $2 a day. They would love to have your problems. Please let me be afflicted like the Americans. Please. I'd love to be poor like that. $2 a day, abject, deep poverty. This is a recipe that produced overflowing liberality. And then he talks about the process. What was the process? The process, they first looked at what they had. They said they, they gave according to their ability. So they looked at what they had. They said, okay, we, we don't have none. <laughs> we, my balance sheet says zero. I'm as poor as dirt. Poor as dirt. I don't have a thing to give. But they didn't stop there. It says they went beyond their ability. Do you know what beyond your ability means? It's the evidence that you're tapping into grace. Jesus, 5,000 men out in the wilderness, been with him three days, not to mention women and children, 10,000 folks. The disciples realize it's three days, and these people didn't prepare to be out in, in a conference for three days. 
They thought it was just going to be a little church service. Hour-long meeting. Three days later, they have run out of rations. The disciples know better, though. They know they better take as much food as possible because they could be out there a week. They've been with Jesus long enough to know it's unpredictable. So they say to, to Jesus, you know, you need to send these people away because they're hungry. They, they don't have any food. They, they, there's no Chick-fil-A around here. They need to go home. And Jesus says, why don't you feed them? I mean, we've only got five loaves and two fish. That's it. Now, that was their excuse as to why they couldn't. What they were saying is, we want to eat our five loaves and two fish. That's what they were saying. That's for us, Jesus. We've only got that. It can't feed them, so let us have ours. Jesus said, bring it to me. Jesus saw something different. He was able to tap into something different than just what was in front of him. With respect to that crowd, he was poor. If he just looked in the natural, couldn't get any more poor. He didn't have enough to feed 10,000 people. But he had grace. And grace produces that which you do not have. That's what grace does. When you partner with grace, it extends your ability. It produces beyond your ability to produce tapped into grace and all of a sudden gave thanks, took that bread, broke it and just kept breaking. It just kept breaking. And the disciples were saying, what kind of trick is that right there? How's he doing? What? That's a, he's doing another miracle. Woo! And I don't know how it happened, but Jesus had to sit there for probably a couple of hours breaking. To provide for the people. This was not only a lesson in multiplication and how you believe for that which you do not have. This was a lesson in service. Somebody had to keep breaking it. Grace allows you the ability to hang in there and say, Lord, I may not have, but you do. So I'm going to figure out a way how to tap into yours rather than just depend upon mine. I love that. She said amen. She too. She's two. She said amen. I love you, baby. You are officially a member of my church. Outside their own ability. And then it says they were willing. How's your want to? How's your want to? They were so willing that you get the sense here that Paul was saying stop because it says that they begged him for the privilege of being able to support the saints in Jerusalem. They begged begged us with much entreaty. Do you know what that looks like? Paul, don't, don't, no. I know we don't have much, but don't. Don't you deprive us of the privilege. I am begging you. I'm on my knees. You listen to me. I want to give begged with much entreaty for the privilege of supporting the saints in Jerusalem. What's your want to look like? Because if you don't want to, you generally won't find the grace to do it. And then it says that they gave themselves deeply to God. Their devotion increased. Lord, we want to help, but we know we can't do it. But we know if we give ourselves to you, 
that somehow or another you'll provide for our needs and everybody else's. So we lay ourselves on the altar of obedience. On the altar of sacrifice, whatever you want to do with us, do it. Let us be a testimony to the world of what giving looks like, Lord, in in letting us provide for those people who have not. They gave themselves to God. And as a result, not only did it express itself in overwhelming liberality, but lastly, it, it says, Paul said, they did this in such a way that it went beyond our expectations. Now, Paul, Paul has some serious expectations. I mean, this was a man who defined what sacrifice looked like. And so to impress him, you had to do something. You had to do something. He would would expect people to sacrifice with him, not just for him, with him. Now, how would you like to be his compatriot on his staff when the prophet says to him, I see the man going to Jerusalem with his hands tied like this, had a belt around his hands, and the people to whom he's going to minister are going to beat him and put him in jail. Now, all the church, when the prophet spoke to to Paul, thought, whoo, the prophet has spoken, Paul ain't going, hallelujah. This is beautiful. Thank you, prophet, for telling our apostle not to go because we love him. We don't want him to die. And then Paul chimes up and says, eh, all you've done is turn the dial to what I tap into every day of my life. He tells me every place I go, I'm awaiting affliction. Now, if I'm a staff member, I'm thinking, dude, really? You know, I'm feeling the Lord just telling me to stay. I'm just feeling the Lord speaking, just remain in his presence. Yeah, you travel with Paul, you travel with trouble. He knew what it meant. When you impress him with sacrifice, you've done something. Because he expected everybody around him to sacrifice like him. And he didn't say, you're amazing when you did it. He said, this is your sacrifice to Christ. When he says, you've gone beyond my expectations, you've done something. I'm begging you. Figure out a way in your giving to partner with grace. Don't always just look at what you got. Try to figure out how to go beyond your ability and see what God will do through you. Can you say amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Inspire us to be like the church at Philippi.